Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conversations on Sex, Addiction, and Relationships. I'm Wendy Conquest, and I'm here with Tim Stein, Dan Drake, and Jeannie Vitoni. And today, we're very excited to have a guest speaker, Michelle Mays. And so Michelle Mays specializes in sex addiction, trauma, and relationship issues. Her new book is The Betrayal Bind, and her Center for Relational Recovery is in Northern Virginia, right outside of D.C. Um, but she's here with us today to talk about a lot of different topics. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I have had clients do her coaching program and have been very, very excited about it and found it very, very helpful. So I'm excited to have her here today with us. I'm super excited Michelle's here and I, I'm sure my enthusiasm is going to go over, but Michelle has been in this field for so many years and done so much work with addicts, but also in betrayal trauma. And um, one of the specializations I really get into is the sexual impact of betrayal and addiction. And um, so I'm really excited to, to meet her because I haven't actually met Michelle before. Have you guys met Michelle? I have not. I have not. I'm looking forward to it. I, I I love having these conversations with you know colleagues in our in our field and hearing where we overlap as far as you know having you know similar ideas and where there's something new for me to learn and uh, to see things in a little different perspective. Yeah, same. I met Michelle. Met Michelle. We we met at a conference some at some point, but obviously tracked what she does in her field. I'm so grateful. She has such a clear voice and such a wise voice and compassionate voice. So I'm, I'm really excited to have her join us today. Great. Let's bring her on. Come on, Michelle. Welcome, Hi. Michelle. Hello. Welcome. Hi. It's good to be here. Thank you. Can I just ask you, so you, you, I, I'd love to hear more about the book, your new book, uh, Betrayal Bind. Can you talk more about it? us yeah let's start there okay yeah well so the book came out in march and the book is really laying out a new attachment-based model for treating partner betrayal so we're really looking at i think you know in the field of treating partners we have really been looking at for a long time the um, trauma and thinking about the trauma that partners go through and what I wanted to do in my book was kind of go even earlier than the trauma, because I think, you know, the very first thing that happens for partners is their attachment system goes into distress. And it's when our attachment system goes into distress that it causes all the trauma symptoms and the coping strategies that evolve from that. So I kind of wanted to go underneath even the trauma symptoms and address that attachment piece. So I do that in the book and I kind of have a whole model and we kind of pull it apart and look at it in different ways. And we look at the different injuries that partners experience. I break it up into three different injuries, an emotional injury, an attachment injury, and a sexual injury. And um, kind of walk everybody through the whole thing throughout the course of the, of the book. So Michelle, I'm curious about this um, because way back in the day when um, we first started treating partners, uh, the, the old model basically was, uh, so um, the sex addict, you have um, your trauma and your issues that have resulted in sex addiction. And then, you know, we would tr turn to the partner and say, but you're with him or her. So 
what's your story? You know, so what sort of what are your issues? And the partners would just be flying out of the rooms because it was such an affront and such an insult um, at that particular right juncture to say um, that something, you know, that, that, that somehow they had something to do with this dynamic. So when I hear attachment, I get really curious about how are you going back in time to their uh, attachment wounds or is it focusing on attach the attachment rupture that happens with sex addiction? Yeah, I'm more looking at the attachment in your primary adult romantic relationship and the rupture that the betrayal is creating and then how that is affecting your attachment system. And then what are the coping strategies that typically evolve as a result of that? And so, you know, I think sometimes we look at the trauma symptoms that partners experience and we kind of think, okay, that's a, that's a trauma symptom. We don't always ask what's the relational dynamic driving the trauma symptom or what's the relational strategy driving the coping. And so I wanted to kind of go back and look at that piece, but it is in your primary uh, relationship, your primary attachment figure is your adult romantic partner. So it is looking at that piece of it. I'm so right. glad you Claire asked that question, Wendy, because typically when folks hear attachment theory or attachment based, you know, in their mind, they're going, okay, wait a second. Now we're talking about my childhood, mm -hmm. you know? And so betrayed partners because of a previous way of treating them, which was not accurate for most, because it really minimized the impact of the trauma of this information. I can hear some of them getting a little bit nervous, like, wait a second, we're going back to my childhood. Mm -hmm. So I'm really glad you asked that question. And Michelle, I'm really glad you, you explained, we're talking about the attachment, the relational attachment in this primary adult relationship. Yes. And the rupture that the betrayal and pain causes in that relationship. Mm -hmm. Did I get this right? I just want to make sure I'm really understanding you too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, gosh, we could talk a lot about the old model. You know? yeah. <laughs> or not. <laughs> we could have a whole conversation about that because I, I talk about this in the book that I have my own story of betrayal many, many years ago. And it was when that was the model mm. and stuff. So I could, I could go on about that, but yes, I am talking about the, your romantic partner, your long-term partner and really looking at how that is impacting you because our attachment systems are, you know, they're exquisitely fine-tuned and we feel, if you think about like having a conversation with your partner and you just feel missed by them a little bit, you're not even in a disagreement or a conflict or you just, but you just feel missed, you will feel that and you'll feel like you need to fix it to kind of feel right again. Mm -hmm. And that's how fine-tuned our attachment systems are. And so if you think about the kind of rupture that chronic betrayal and chronic dishonesty and lying create, it is a wallop to our attachment systems. It's just enormous amounts of distress that it creates. Mm -hmm. so yeah, that is what we're looking at. There's something in your, in your model I found really, really interesting or a few things actually, but um, you know, I, at, AppSats, we, we talked about the three-phase model and, you know, safety, safety stabilization being first and then building remembrance and mourning. I found it really interesting when you're talking about devastation that there's also the realization that comes next. And I, I think you're, I, I haven't, 
I've seen that a lot where it's like, it, this is re, like the, the full extent of it coming to the full weight of what this is. I feel like that's not addressed as much. And I, I, I think that's pretty amazing that you, you're addressing that and then, you know, reclaiming and trying to, to build from there. I, I just think it's a, it seems like a pretty holistic, really integrated, you know, trauma approach to, to helping treat betrayal trauma. So I'm just, I just curious about yeah, your yeah. process and, and the, the model and how, um, I guess we can go into like more of the specifics, but can you, sh- I'd be curious, where did you, you know, is it your experience, research, kind of how did you come to this? I mean, honestly, I think research, a ton of research on attachment and also really looking at childhood attachment and then how what happens in adult, in our adult lives mirrors that because the fourth attachment style, which is disorganized attachment was identified with children who were faced with an unsafe caregiver. And that created all this disorganization inside of them. And that is exactly the the mirror of that is what happens in betrayal when our primary attachment figure becomes unsafe. And then it creates all this disorganization inside this. So I started getting really curious as I read the research about, gosh, this exact dynamic that happens in childhood is what's happening in adulthood and then creating all of these, um, you know, symptoms and coping strategies and disruptions that everybody's dealing with. So there was a lot of researching. And then there was a lot of just all the partners that I've sat with and treated and really thinking about what are the phases that I see them go through kind of consistently over and over and over again. And, um, and just really trying to kind of pull out those different pieces of that. And so you were talking, Dan, about the realization phase and that phase I think is such a key phase. So the first phase is of course devastation when you just get knocked down by the discovery, but the realization is phase is when you really start to realize, oh, I'm not going to be able to just sweep this under the rug. I think most people right after discovery of betrayal are hoping they're going to be able to get through it pretty quickly. They're hoping for it to not be this enormous thing. And the realizations phase is when they're faced with, oh, this is going to take some serious work. Or, oh, this is actually an addiction we're dealing with, not just infidelity. Or, oh, this is what the healing process really looks like. So there's so much that's kind of sinking in and being absorbed by them in that phase. And it really changes things for them as they do that. So yeah, I think that piece that you're talking about. No, I, I, in, in, when I do trauma work and I would be curious what you all think, but it seems like there's coming to terms, this happened and then, and it was a big deal. This was a huge deal. That seems to be that dawning takes some time that, you know, recognition. I, 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 you know, I, what you guys would see, but that, that seems to be something I've seen consistently. Definitely. Yeah. I, I, and, and I think that for addicts and partners, both, uh, they both want the healing to start right away. You know, let, let's repair the relationship. Let's repair what's happened. Let's sort of like, you know, figure this out quickly and get over it. And um, it's, it's hard to tell people, you know, this is going to take years. It's going to take years. Um, and, and we just have to do one step at a time to um, make sure that both of you are safe and doing the best, you know, doing the best, you get the best intervention that you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, that really is true. Relational work, right? Relational healing takes time because it's so complex and nuanced. And it makes sense to me that we, we again, ABSATS has a three-phase model and there's the relational component, the relational healing in sort of each of those phases a bit. Mm-hmm. And we know that relational trauma is healed with relationship. For example, when I say that, what I mean is, is um, a betrayed partner, for example, having a strong relationship possibly with the therapist or the coach or their group support and possibly friends, possibly family. And then how do I trust my primary person who was the betrayer and what's the relationship repair there? Mm. So um, it makes sense to me that attachment is in here. I'm Mm -hmm. so glad you were able to um, demonstrate and, and, and explore it and present it in such a way that it's really consumable by a lot of folks. Yeah. Thank you. Well, and I, another thing that's coming up for me is I'm thinking about the realization piece and what you were saying, Wendy, about this, you know, telling people it's going to take a while and um, having to look at that. And I always think that part of the realization phase is this danger point for a lot of people, because when they start to realize what's happening, it can feel so scary that they actually decide to duck out of treatment and also duck out of reality a little bit. And they go back into what I, you know, I refer to Jennifer Freyd's work on betrayal blindness, going back into kind of being blind about things because it feels too scary to face it and go forward. So I always feel like that phase is really pivotal for people. They're either going to come into realization and then move forward into healing, or they're going to come into realization and get so scared that they actually move backwards. And so it's a really pivotal moment for betrayed partners in their healing, I think. I don't know if this is a fair question, Michelle, but do you find that there are certain, there's a certain, there's certain characteristics of certain partners that have them bode better than others? I don't know if this is a fair question, but I, but it's something that I've been curious about for a long time. Um, uh, there's, I have to say, wouldn't it be great if there's some research on that? (laughs) Wendy, are you saying, are you asking or exploring that of, are there factors or resource factors, resiliency factors Mm -hmm. that help certain partners, um, heal quicker or more completely? Are you looking at that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's anecdotal for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I find is the partners that um, are more cognitive oriented versus emotionally oriented, is, I've seen seem to do better. Mm-hmm. Like somehow or another, they're able to conceptualize things intellectually. Um, yeah. And so they, they seem to, to uh, bode better but it's strictly anecdotal i have no research on that at all and it's one Can we define better wendy when, when you say better what do you oh, mean thanks. um they um they're they are functioning better they are taking information in and conceptualizing it they're able to um uh have a, uh, some distance from it almost so, so um, almost like a, 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 dare I say, they don't 
take it as personally. It still hurts. It's still very impactful. There's still trauma, um, but it's almost like they have this other um, skill or this other dynamic that they pull from uh, to, I'm going to say, be more resilient in the process. But I don't, again, it's the anadol. I don't, I don't know if that is real or not. Yeah. It's an interesting observation. I ha I have to think about that, you know, that, cause I think that's an interesting, I would say, I mean, I just, I always think healing is contextual for everybody mm -hmm. and it so depends on what is going on. I mean, I see so many people coming in to our coaching program and they've got a cancer diagnosis they've got a dying mother, they've got a child with an opiate addiction, they've got, you know, they've got all these other life traumas that they're managing in the middle of also managing betrayal, or they do have a real history of childhood trauma and adult trauma that is also in the bag and in the mix of what's being coped with. And so I, I don't know, that's an interesting, I'm going to really watch for what you just said about the emotional or cognitive, because I think that's a really interesting observation. Um, I think I tend to think uh, often it's very contextual about how much they're dealing with and what they've been dealing with and how they've been dealing with that too. Yeah, I, that that's a that's a great point. And, and, I, and nothing happens in isolation. Yeah. And so I think um, there's so many different factors of um, when it happened, past trauma, as you said, um, where they are at their, in their phase of life. Um, is it different if someone's newly married or they've been married 30 years? I, there's so many different factors. Um, I think that there's a, there's a piece of what, what you're talking about. Like we look at addicts and we know that there's a variety of addicts that walk through our, our door. And while everyone is unique based on their past experience, you know, there's sort of like general categories there. There are addicts that have more of an anger feel, addicts that have more of a narcissistic feel, addicts that are more uh, afraid of rejection. And so they're more isolative addicts who need to more uh, sort of put themselves out there from a power perspective and, and, and sort of not only their addictive behaviors, but also sort of their healing process and how they're able to step into recovery or not, and how they're able to step into relational healing and vulnerability or not sort of varies, you know, based on sort of what they're walking in and sort of what type of category we've got. I think like when, I love when you said, Michelle, we need more research. I, I think I make up that there's a similar kind of sort of like different bins or different categories of partners and their own experiences walking in. And some partners have a real easy time stepping in and saying, I'm hurt, I'm angry, but I'm I'm here in this relationship and we're going to work through it. And you can be imperfect and I get it. And that doesn't mean I'm going to like it, but we're going to work through it. And some other partners have a much harder time uh, tolerating that. And there's a variety of reasons why, not judgment about that. But I think in the partner betrayal world, we haven't really yet sort of understood or looked at what are the nuances of these different types of partners that walk in and do we need to adjust our treatment programs and sort of like what the protocol is for them based on kind of what they're walking in with. Can I I'd actually like a layer, can I add a layer to that real quick? Cause yes. I, one of the things that has been a really interesting learning curve for me, because I think you all have counseling centers that you work at, correct? Like 
So because I've had a counseling center, you know, for a decade, over a decade, and when you are running a counseling center, you have a certain kind of clientele coming in. Not everybody wants to get well, but they are showing up for treatment. You know, they are coming in and seeking help and seeking treatment. And so that's a certain type of client. So when I started our coaching program for Betrayed Partners, you know, we started getting partners from all walks of life and it just was a very different population. And what I started really seeing was, okay, there's this whole other population of partners who are dealing with what I like to call the belligerent cheater, who is like, I'm not getting treatment. I'm not even stopping the affair. Like you need to get over it because this is going to continue or I might stop cheating, but I'm not doing anything. You just need to get over it. And there's a whole world of partners who are dealing with that and who are not coming into the counseling centers. And so that's also like a really interesting dynamic. I've really been paying attention to those partners and what's happening with them that's a little different because they are dealing with a really challenging dynamic that it just, for me, it was different than what I was experiencing at the counseling center. And I've just found that really interesting to, to work with that and observe it and learn from them. We've actually had some of those partners come in and it is, it is interesting work, which is they're aware. I've got this trauma. I've got this pain. I recognize what's going on with my partner and their behavior that is creating this. And I need to do my own healing. And I don't know what that path is going to look like, but I'm stepping into that healing. And they have an awareness that either their partner is not going to do that work, is in denial that they're an addict or and may or may not change, and they're not sure they're going to stay or they're going to leave, but they're definitely stepping into, I need to do my healing work. And that in and of itself is going to change the dynamic in, in, in a number of ways. But there is that piece of, you know, people out there who are um, in the relationship and, and the other person is saying, I'm not doing a thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of it. There's a lot of it, you know, and man, that's challenging. That's challenging to deal with. Michelle, with your book um, and and the model you've created, you know, I'm making an assumption. So let me just clarify that the model is applicable, whether someone has a partner who is going to work through treatment or seeking to stop the behavior or whatever, that the model is appropriate for both types of folks, correct? Okay. Yeah, it's appropriate for both. And I would also add, it's appropriate whether your partner is uh, uh, dealing with an addiction or dealing with, you know, traditional infidelity and affair or anything like that. So it would also bridge both of those. Michelle, yeah. is this also for um, partners that are not in the relationship anymore? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think even if you're, you know, leaving the relationship does not heal what you have experienced. And I think sometimes we can think that, you know, we can think if I just leave the relationship, I will be okay. But you really have to, as a betrayed partner, go back and look at what happened because that relationship has shaped you and it's shaped your coping. It's also often shaped you in ways that are very unconscious for you. And so it's really important to be able to go back and get conscious about that and then really look at, okay, how do I want to live my life? How do I want to do relationships? How do I want to you know, be connected to my sexual self relationship with myself and other, you know, it's so important to do that, whether you're in the relationship and staying or leaving. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. You know, in the work, work that we do, we Jeannie and I refer to um, the ADDIC program here at Willow Tree Counseling as a partner-sensitive ADDIC program. You know, we are bringing in sort of awareness of the partner betrayal trauma of how that shows up and we're bringing it into the work with the addict. And we find that it's actually very helpful, not only for the partner uh, in the relational healing, but it's helpful for the addict. I wonder with your attachment model and when the couple is coming in together, how does the, uh, does your attachment model, how does it not only help the couple, but I wonder if it benefits the addict in their own recovery process as well. And what are you seeing there? I do. In fact, I've thought about, like, I feel almost like we need a companion book for the addiction piece mm -hmm. that is from that model as well. And you could almost go chapter by chapter and, and I don't know, maybe I will write it. I don't know. Yeah. When's that coming out? <laughs> I feel like we, need, we do we need have it. more time, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yes, I think so. And I think for a lot of addicted clients that I work with, understanding the relational piece helps them understand what is going on in the relationship, why their partner one day is like nice to them. And the next day wants nothing to do with them. You know, it helps them kind of understand the roller coaster they're on and understand their own attachment system and what's happened in terms of like, one of the things we talk about um, with the addicted partner or the cheating partner is that they have competing attachments and they're pulled between their partner, their primary attachment, and they're pulled between that partner and the addiction or that partner and the affair partner. And they've got these competing attachments that are often very alive for them when discovery happens. And they have to then figure out how to resolve those at the same time then that the partner has all of their attachment system stuff going on. So it's really complicated. And I think it helps everybody when, when you put words to it, it helps everybody start to be like, okay, this is what is happening for us. So I think it's good for both people. You know, Michelle, what you just said, it was just incredible. Um, so uh, what I heard was you naming that the addict has different attachments, maybe attachment to the affair partner. And I can hear partners. I can hear the partner voice going, are you kidding me? You know, that's supposed to be an addiction. That's not, you know, it's, it's a false attachment. It's a pseudo attachment. And how can that attachment compete with my attachment? You know, can, I can hear the, the angst and the, and the frustration pain. around that. Pain. The pain around that um, is because, and I've tried many, many times to try to explain how an addict has, I, I refer to it as pseudo attachments. Um, but is there is there a way that you can explain that a little bit more of how addicts are actually attached to mm -hmm. acting out um, partners or acting out vehicles? Mm -hmm. uh, and is that more or less of an attachment to their uh, primary person? Mm -hmm might be a hard question yeah well, so I'm thinking it, it's this yeah. is michelle's perspective right because i can hear people going oh no like here's the word coming mm. that's and i i i want to i want to be careful with you michelle <laughs> you're being protective <laughs> I Thank you. um all right well so if we're thinking about an addiction and how that becomes an attachment for the person if you think about the fact that 
when they're acting out, whatever the acting out looks like, whether it's pornography, whether it's some form of sex with a partner, whatever it looks like, it is dependable, it is reliable, and it becomes the thing that the person turns to in order to cope. And they're really turning to it instead of using their relational attachment-based system to cope. We're actually wired our relational attachment system is actually our best regulatory tool. And when we reach for a relationship with our partner, with our friends, with our family, that's actually the very best way that we regulate our emotional selves. And what addicts are doing is they're reaching for sex to regulate their emotional self. And they do develop an attachment to that because it's the dependable thing that they're reaching for to regulate. And they're often substituting that for relational connection and for knowing how to use that relational, their relational system to do that regulation. So it it is a competing attachment in that way. And it's also, if you're a betrayed partner, you just know that it, the, the betrayal itself feels like that competitive, like that piece, like there is something else my partner is turning to that is not me. So you can feel that in the betrayal piece, but they are also attached to you. And what I actually hear a lot of betrayed partners say is, well, they weren't really attached to me. They were attached to their addiction. They were attached to their affair part. They weren't really attached to me. And I always say to them, well, the way that attachment works is that it's, it's a physiological experience. And when we pair bond with our partner, we actually become one biological unit with them. And if you've just joined us, you're listening to Conversations on Sex, Addiction, and Relationships. And we're here today with Michelle Mays. Michelle, I have a question for you. It's it's maybe a bit nitty gritty, but I've never heard anyone conceptualize things this way. Can you share more the seven betrayal binds that you talked about? Can you share more about them? Because you talked about the roller coaster earlier, and I can just imagine what that does to an attachment structure. So can you share more about those? Yeah. So one of the things that as I was working on the book and looking at the research is the way in which, because it is our primary attachment figure who's becoming dangerous to us, it puts us in a profound bind. And the bind that it puts us in is that they are the person that we would normally go to when we feel distressed. The way that our attachment system functions in our body is that when we feel stressed or we feel distressed, our attachment system fires and it prompts us to reach out for comfort from our primary attachment figure or friends, family, but often from our primary person. And that's how it functions for us. So that works great most of the time. Like if you are, you know, having an argument with your sibling and then you want to process it, you call your partner and you talk to them about it and you say, oh, this happened or you have a bad day at work. And our attachment system and our threat system sync up really well and they work in concert. But what happens when our primary attachment figure becomes dangerous is that these systems actually now start to come into conflict conflict with one another. And now when our attachment system says, hey, you're in the biggest distress of your life because you just discovered all of this betrayal, reach for the person you would normally reach for, that person is actually the cause of the pain. And so your threat response system fires at the same time and says, 
fight, flee, freeze, somehow manage this threat response by moving away from it. And so these systems now are in conflict. And so betrayed partners feel like they don't know if they're coming or going. You know, one minute they feel like, you know, I need you and I want to talk to you about what's happened and I want you to hear me. And the next minute they're like, I never want to see you again and I hate you. And one minute they're calling the couple therapist and the next minute they're calling the divorce lawyer and they're all over the map. And, and it's not because they don't know their own mind. It's actually because of what's happening in their bodies. It's actually because of how these two systems are now in conflict with one another. And so that's kind of the big betrayal bind. And then out of that actually spill a whole bunch of other binds that um, I talk about in the book and stuff. It would be too much to go into here, but it all comes out of that original dilemma of my primary person is now the source of my danger and pain. And if people wanted to find out more about all those betrayal binds, where can they find your book? They can find my book anywhere books are sold. So you can go to wherever you normally purchase your books and you'll find it there. Yeah. Uh, Jeannie? I have a question. Yep. Thanks. I have a question about a term that you've been using that has come up multiple times in, in my work with different clients. And, and the term is betrayal blindness. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of me that um, I got to say, kind of goes, eep! <laughs> Because it, it, in the way that I hear it, sometimes it sounds pathologizing. Mm -hmm. And I, I, when I kind of sit down and simmer my Olympic system down, I'm like, I use a different descriptor of it is the information, the presentation, the situation is too overwhelming for the individual psyche. And so the psyche tries to create a different reality, you know, like, okay, here are all these receipts. Well, that can't be mm -hmm. that's. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to just kind of either not pay attention or believe the stories I've been given, or that's too scary. I don't know. So I'm just going to let it go. I see that as an overwhelmed psyche. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you're using it in a pathologizing way. I'm not saying that, mm -hmm. but I've had myself and others who kind of go, Ooh, that sounds negative towards the partner. Mm -hmm. Can you spend a little bit of time and really maybe educate me, but mm -hmm. also others about the, the, uh, intention and manifestation of that term? Yeah. It's interesting because I actually really like it. Cause I feel like it's not pathologizing. Oh, it's very interesting. <laughs> okay. Like just, All right. you know, reaction. Cause yeah. I actually like it much better than the idea of denial, which does. Feel yes. Bad, boo. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, so betrayal blindness was that term was coined by Jennifer Freyd, who is the founder of betrayal trauma theory. And in her research, what she saw is that when we go blind to information, that we're doing that for very, very good reason. And we usually go blind to information for an attachment-based reason. Mm -hmm. It actually has to do with our attachment system. And we go blind to information that threatens our attachment. It threatens our connection. It threatens our relationship with our partner. And when it threatens our relationship, that feels overwhelming and it feels scary. And so we will hold information out of our conscious awareness so that we can keep the relationship intact. So to me, I really like the term because it has that it, it helps us understand why we're doing it, that it's relational in nature at the core. 
and that it is about being in a state of fear and overwhelm about what it will mean for our relationship. And we go unconscious. So we hold the information outside of our awareness. So what I talk to my partners about with betrayal blindness is what we want to do is we want to gently, very gently bring the information back into our awareness. And then we're going to sit with the feelings and it's going to bring up fear and it's going to bring up terror. Sometimes it's going to bring up, it's big feelings. We're not doing that because we feel mildly uncomfortable. You know, <laughs> We're doing it because it's really scary for us. And so I think just acknowledging that and validating that, and that this is actually a normal thing that happens to people. This is actually how you are wired. It has to do with how your attachment system is wired. This is a normal coping strategy that betrayed partners experience. And then we want to think about, does it serve us well? And how do we work with it? But I want it to be super normalized for people. Um, so that they, cause I don't want it to feel pathologizing at all. And also to, for everybody to understand that it isn't, it isn't just about overwhelm, but it's also about the relational piece. It's mm -hmm. the fear of what's happening in the relationship. I love that. That makes a lot of sense to me. And, um, and, and I know that it's made sense to other people too. Mm -hmm. And so I love the fact that you're saying this is a normal biological response. Yep. Uh, some of which is unconscious. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's part of the work of bringing that into consciousness mm -hmm. and then making informed decision and choice. Yes. Because I can see those receipts and saying that I, they may be what I think they are, but I'm choosing in a conscious way to not in interact, which yeah. is different. That's so thank you for taking a moment and sharing and getting a little more um, detailed with that. Yeah. And I'm just going to say what I see happen for partners as they work with this is that like often partners will, because we do work on this in the coaching program, they'll post about it in the feed or we'll talk about it in the coaching calls. And they'll say like, now that I see how I have done this, I had this thing happen this week. Mm -hmm. And in the past, I would have talked myself out of it, told myself it wasn't a big deal, somehow hidden it from myself. And instead I did this, I wrote it down. I'm, I'm really holding myself to try to stay in reality. It's really scary for me. Mm -hmm. I'm processing the feelings around it. So they, once they understand it, they can start to do something different, which is very empowering for them. Right. Yeah. Empowerment is one of the key yeah. components of trauma healing. Yeah. I would also imagine um, that this is what kids do in really challenging situations a parents an alcoholic or not coming home and and it's just um I, well I can't really take this all in I can't look at this as what it really is so you know I'm gonna just I don't know uh, uh contextualize it somehow or ignore it or pretend it didn't happen um so I would think that partners doing this could have such a powerful um, way of doing it now as an adult in this attachment-based relationship, but then potentially be able to go back in time if they wanted to, to other traumas that they've had. Mm -hmm. And same thing, was that real? Or was that my imagination? What, you know, what was that? Mm -hmm. Or really any trauma that they had? 
Yeah. And I think if you had a history of significant childhood trauma, I mean, again, the research on betrayal blindness was done with children originally. Mm. It was, it was that dilemma of, I have to maintain my relationship with my primary caregiver. I'm hundred percent dependent on them. So then therefore I have to let myself not know about the things that are dangerous here. So I think if you have a history of childhood trauma, you're often going to have learned betrayal blindness very young because of the system you're in, and then maybe be more likely to also cope with it that way as an adult. So there's pieces to look at, you know, depending on your story. You know, as, as we're kind of wrapping up here a little bit, Michelle, I'm curious if there was one thing about betrayal binds and your attachment model that you want partners to walk away with and one thing you want addicts to walk away with. And it might be the same thing or it might be different. What would you want them to to take away from our conversation today? You know, I always feel like the one thing that I really, really want people to know is that healing is possible. I think that often, you know, as you all know, because of the clients that you work with, people are dealing with very complex situations where a lot of harm and a lot of damage has often been done. And I think it can feel when you're in the middle of that, like there's no way that we could even get to a point of like feeling decent, let alone thrive after this or flourish after this. And yet it is absolutely possible to heal your relationship or to heal yourself, not always a relationship. So the way I say it is their healing is 100% available to you as a betrayed partner, always that you will come through this and can come through the other side of it and heal and flourish again. It is also, if your partner is willing, available to your relationship and your relationship can flourish once again after betrayal in ways that would absolutely shock and surprise you. But I have worked with, I mean, hundreds of couples at this point who have done the work and come out the other side and So I think that's the biggest thing I really want people to know is how possible it is to heal and uh, get through this, this big trauma that you're experiencing with the betrayal. So thank you all for listening. And uh, if you're watching on YouTube for watching today, and thank you, Michelle, for being with us. I really thought the conversation was amazing. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And if you uh, liked this episode, please follow us. And then uh, also, if you liked it, give us a like on whatever platform that you were listening to today. And we look forward to seeing you next time. And if you have questions for us that you would like to answer specific to sex addiction, betrayal, trauma, relationships, or anything else, send those to us at conversations.sar at gmail.com. And we will answer those in a mailbag. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye.